Amen. I'd like to begin by saying a little disclaimer. Um, Some of you may walk away tonight and miss what we talk about. And that's totally possible. Uh, I would say it'd be unfortunate, uh, but it is possible. So you have to listen tonight with the intent to hear what God has to say. Now, I know you would say, well, I do that all the time. Hopefully that is true. Uh, But it would be easy to miss what God wants to say tonight, uh, because as we dive into verses five through nine, uh, what your tendency is going to be is to check out. And I'll explain that as we progress, Uh, not because it's boring, uh, but because um, I just think that the tendency would be that it'd be easy to miss what God has for us tonight. And so, I, you know, I thought, you know what, let's just get that right out of the gate so we can talk about it. And maybe you'll zero in a little more because uh, I think there's very, very instructive things for us in here. Uh, But we have to be careful to listen and to hear uh, for what God wants it to be uh, heard for. So as we talked last week, Pastor Tony led our uh, series off last week talking about Titus and a little bit about who he is and his relationship uh, with Paul. He was kind of an understudy, if you will. And so Paul and Timothy, uh, you know, had a great relationship, Paul and Titus had a great relationship. And so Titus is uh, someone that was involved a little bit in the church at Corinth. You see his name appear a couple of times in the book of Corinthians or the letter of Corinthians. And then uh, they go and uh, they start this church in Crete. And so uh, Paul leaves. And as Pastor Tony talked about last week, he leaves Titus there. And so now Titus is left behind. And so Paul begins the letter and kind of instructs who he is. You know, Pastor Tony reviewed that last week. Uh, You can go back on the website if you missed that. And then he gets to verse five. And so he starts to talk about what it is that he wants uh, Titus to do. Now, um, he begins his remarks and he talks about, you know, who he is. And he says a servant of God in verse one and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so (coughs) he really builds the case for the absolute kingship of God. And he challenges this whole atmosphere of of subjectivism. You see, uh, what we'll see a little bit later is that the entire uh, first century Crete was dominated by subjectivism. You know, whatever fits, whatever, whatever they feel like, you know, whatever they want to do. And as you think about it, it always happens this way because God is sovereign. But as you think about uh, that application to us, the same is true today. Everything is subjective. You know, that's I mean, we've said that over and over and over and over. And so as Paul is writing to to Titus here, he's saying, uh, Titus, look, I need you to get things. And he says in verse five that you might put what remains into order. And so he's trying to get uh, Titus to get things in order. Their lives were completely out of order. Now, it's easy for you and for me to that's a danger for us. That we would uh, allow certain things to supersede other things. That priorities in our life would begin to take shape. Maybe even accidentally. Uh, certainly for the church at Crete, there were uh, people that put things before God. That they uh, put actions, activities, and attitudes that led them away. And so their lives began to get off kilter. And you see it a lot. And I'm going to give you some uh, easy barometers to measure that in your own life here in a few minutes. But you see this uh, for the, Cre- the Cretan Christians here. And their fundamental problem was that there was a gap 
between what they said they believed and how they actually behaved. There was a gap between that. You see, you can say, I can say all day long what I believe, but there's a big difference in me saying what I believe versus me behaving what I believe. Right? In our world today, if you say the right thing, you know, the Supreme Court leak, you know, that came out a couple days ago is a big topic of conversation really everywhere. And so you hear different people chiming in and, you know, well, I need to say this about it. And you hear, you know, lots of people have opinions about it. And so they're all saying, uh, saying this and they're saying that. And so it's things that they, they want you to believe that they believe. But behavior determines Behavior describes your belief system, right? If you say that you believe something, you will behave that way in order to prove that to be true. Because if you actually believe it, you know, simple example, if you believe that Whataburger is the best burger in Gulfport, then you're going to eat there, right? It's just behavior dictates what you actually uh, believe or it determines it by, you know, describing it. And so here's these Christians, you know, in this church that Titus is left behind with. And there's a difference here. There's a gap. And so the challenge for us is that we would look at our lives and say, what is it that I believe? And do I behave? Is my behavior reflective of that? Am I behaving in a manner? Do I believe that Jesus Christ is sovereign? Well, then I'm going to behave that way. Do I believe that Jesus loves my neighbor? Then I'm going to behave that way. Do I believe that Jesus loves my enemies? Then I'm going to behave that way. Because if I believe it, then that should drive me uh, to behave that way. And so what was happening at the church at Crete is that truth was not leading to godliness. Truth was not leading to godliness. You see, the problem in our world today, the problem that they were experiencing, uh, that Titus was facing, was that... Truth was available. You know, we don't have a truth problem today. You probably have 10 Bibles or more at your house. I've got multiple versions and different study Bibles and commentaries. I mean, information is abundant. Truth is not unavailable today. You can find out anything. You can raise your watch and ask your watch or your phone a question and instantly you have the answer. Truth is available, right? But truth has to lead to godliness. Truth has to lead to godliness. And it was not happening uh, here in the, the context that we're studying here in Titus. And so the question is, why is that not happening? And we're going to explore that tonight. You see, truth had become so relative, and it's the same thing in our world today, that truth has become so relative in our world that everyone has an opinion about what is true and what is not. Well, it doesn't matter what you think truth is. You see, the church, unfortunately, is applying the same logic. Is that what is acceptable, uh, and, and sometimes here in this church at Crete, and also maybe even sometimes in our modern church, we apply the same logic. That we say, well, what is truth? What is acceptable? What is believe? Well, you know, so this is what people say. Well, here's what I believe. You know, I don't know if you followed it or not, but I've followed it just a little bit. But there's this big... Uh, you know, they're voting or they're politicking for uh, SBC president right now, Southern Baptist Convention president right now. And there's a lot going on, and I don't, I don't want to follow it or know anything about all the riffraff stuff that's happening. But there's a lot of things that are happening. And so what you're hearing is, well, here's what I believe. Well, I believe this. Well, I believe that. Well, let's make it simple, all right? 
If you want to be a pastor or you want to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, why don't we start with this? Here's what I believe right here. I believe the Bible. That's pretty simple, isn't it? I believe God's word is absolute truth and it's not subject to my interpretation or my opinion. That's pretty simple barometer, right? It's a simple measure for me to say this is what truth is. And so in our world today, truth has become subjective or relative. And unfortunately, sometimes I think in our belief systems, truth has become relative. That we say, well, here's what I think it means. Or here's what I believe. There was this interpretation theory that started really in the 80s, maybe 90s. Of Well, what do you think it says? And so these Bible studies began to develop on what you think it says. Well, it doesn't matter what you think it says. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just being honest with you. I mean, we live in a world to where we think our opinion is the same as everyone else's. And unfortunately, that's not true. Right? What I think, there's a lot of things that I think, and I've said this before, but I'm an expert on my opinion. And you're an expert on your opinion. But unfortunately, as you get older in life, you realize nobody really cares what I think. Right? And so then you have to zero back in and say, well, what is truth? Okay? If, if I can't be anchored to my opinion, and I can't be, then I have to be anchored to something. And so I've got to be anchored to truth. And so, you know, you may say, well, I don't believe that this is, you know, pick a theology uh, statement. I don't believe that this is true about the Bible. I don't believe that. Well, again, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you believe. None of that is relevant. None of it is relevant. The truth dose is that it only matters what the Bible says. Now, let's talk about that very briefly. There are things that you would say that God doesn't tell us to which I would agree with. And then I would say that's because he doesn't want you to know. So stop filling in the blanks, right? Just do what he said. Focus on that. When you master that, then we'll talk, right? And you're never going to master that. But that's what we think is, well, there's things, well, you know, the Bible's gray on this or the Bible's gray on that. And so what I, no, it's not. If you just focus on what God called you to do and what God said, again, there's 66 books for you to spend time in. It takes seven minutes to read Titus, right? So if you just focus on that, then you're not going to get bogged down in all the details of your opinion. You see, whether or not I like it or whether or not you like it doesn't change anything. There's a lot of things in Scripture that are hard. A lot. And that's for a reason. You see, in this pseudo-Christian world that we live in, truth is exchanged for the appearance of godliness. And here's the, here's the proof of that statement. This is not Matt's opinion. Here's the proof of that statement. How is it that in this pseudo-Christian world that we live in, that truth is exchanged for the appearance of godliness. And we're going to get to it in a second, but here's a commercial, all right? Are people's lives being changed because of the Jesus in you? You see, if, if we're talking about truth being exchanged for the appearance, we have exchanged godliness for church attendance. We have exchanged holiness for the appearance of holiness. Right. And we're going to get we're going to we're going to rub elbows tonight with some things that may make you uncomfortable. But the reality is this, is that there is more of an appearance of godliness in our world than there is actual true godliness in our world. It's unfortunate, 
But it's true. You see, there are certain metrics that are present in your life that tell the story of your walk with God without you saying a word. I don't need to ask you because you're going to tell me what you want me to know. I don't need to ask you how your walk with God is going, right? I don't have to ask you that. There's some metrics by which are a telltale sign about what is happening. And so now you're nervous because you're like, all right, well, what do these blanks actually say? (laughs) What do people know about me, right? Well, let's start here. Number one, it starts with how how do we see true godliness? Well, number one, I can tell your walk with God by how you treat other people. I can tell your walk with God simply by how you treat other people. Listen, you know, and I've mentioned this both in truth and in jest in a few messages here recently about how people act in the church. If you can't treat your brothers and sisters with love in the body of Christ, are you in the body of Christ? Right? I mean, let's be honest. Right? This, This Jesus said, they will know that you're my disciples by your church attendance. No, that is not what he said. He said, by your love, one for another. Right? By the way that you treat other people. How about this? How about how you treat people that don't go to church with you? I I mean, I've been with people sometimes that sometimes it's just embarrassing the way that they treat people that they don't know. Right? A waitress or a cashier or, you know, somebody giving, you know, service through, you know, oil change or whatever. How are we treating other people? The way that you treat other people is a metric of your walk with God. And so ask yourself this question. How am I treating other people? How do I respond to people who are working or serving or around me or whatever that I work with and I live beside? Are you, how are you treating them? Jesus said that the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. One and two. That's all he said. And so how you treat people is a great measurement of what your walk with God is actually like. Number two, the way that those closest to you treat you. Right now, I mean, the people that really know you, that metric is the people that really know you. You you might would say the people who live with you, the people who see you when no one else sees you, the way that they treat you is a very clear indication of your walk with God. Right? I, see, I see fathers who their children are terrified of them. Well, they're going to be terrified of God. Right? Because you're exemplifying that, that in their lives. Of that, well, this is what your heavenly father's like. Or I see spouses and, and husbands you know, and wives that are completely disconnected. Is that the way that you are with Jesus? Right? You see what I'm saying? I mean, some of this is, is painful, but it's true. That we have to say, how am I treating other people? How am I treating those people that I live with, that know me, that hear the things that I say and the things that they see, the things that I watch and the way that I treat the dog at home, right? The people that are closest to you, they are the measurement of how your walk with God is. And then number three, how you spend your time. How you spend your time. Where where is your time committed to? What do you put your effort and energy into? How do you spend your time? These are all metrics of how, again, I don't have to ask. No one has to ask what your walk is like. It's it's just true by the way that you act. So you can show up here. You can show up here and dress all up and smile and say the right things. But did you really do anything? 
Because we've, we've exchanged, remember what I said, we've exchanged truth and holiness for the appearance of godliness. And there's going to be a great, uh, there's going to be a great reckoning for that. There's going to be an answer for that. And there's going to be, I mean, read Matthew chapter 7. A lot of people are going to show up in heaven and say, hey, Lord, I did this, 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 and this. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Right? I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to give you the truth here. Is that we've got to stop believing that doing what is acceptable is holiness. That is not holiness. Churches had been started here in the towns on the island of Crete, but they were not in good shape. And so Paul is writing to, to Titus and he's telling them that you need to get leaders to help them to get their lives in order. So Paul is encouraging Titus to put things in order, to raise up and to assign leaders to lead the church at Crete. And so the premise of, of what we'll study tonight, and here's where you'll miss. The premise of our study tonight is Paul's instructions to Titus on how he is to select leaders in the church. So the danger for you tonight would, say, would be this. Well, I'm never going to be a preacher. I'm never going to be a leader. Well, that's not true. And so the danger for you would be that you would miss what you think would apply to someone that's not you. Okay? And so I want you to zero in. I want you to focus in on what we're going to talk about. So these qualities, these attributes that Paul is mentioning, these are attributes that everyone can aspire to pursue. These are attributes that everyone can aspire. Now, specifically, he uses the word elder here. And we've got some elders in our church. We've got a couple of elders in the room tonight. And, uh, you know, of course, with pastors, that's with leadership in the church. But these qualities are attributes that we that everyone uh, could and should aspire to pursue. And here's a couple reasons for that. Number one is we never know when God will call us to leadership. You never know that. David Latil, uh, which will be ordained here in a few weeks, who is our most recent elder, uh, he wasn't an elder until this year. Right? He's been a part of the church and served in many different capacities. But here we have uh, someone who God has risen up, who has led him into leadership. And there's probably people in this room that God is raising up, right? And he's going to move into leadership. Number two is we will never regret the pursuit. We will never regret the pursuit of holiness in our lives. You're never going to regret that. You're not going to look back on your life and say, man, I spent too much time with Jesus. Man, I, I just, I got too sanctified, right? That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. And so it can be instructive for all of us. Uh, D.L. Moody was once told, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. And that stands true today. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man that is fully consecrated to him. And so as we talk about leadership tonight, you see, in our world today, most people want the title of leader without the responsibility of leader. Feels good to be the boss until you're responsible, right? You don't want to be in charge when you're responsible. And so in our world today, we've got a lot of people who want to be in charge. They want to be the boss, but they don't want the responsibility of being the boss. And so as we talk about this tonight, specifically, of course, we're talking about spiritual leadership. And so I want to give you a very clear definition of spiritual leadership. It's very simple. 
Spiritual leadership is moving people onto God's agenda. That's it. Spiritual leadership is moving people onto God's agenda. So we talk about being leaders spiritually. What that means for every Christian is that we would be involved in leading people to move onto God's agenda. Right? Not to conform to what I like or to say the things that I want or to answer the questions or believe the things that I want you to believe. None of that applies. Spiritual leadership is that I would motivate and encourage people to move onto God's agenda. That I would have, that I'm, this is not Matt's agenda, this is God's agenda. You see, if we talk about being a leader spiritually, well, how does it start? Well, you cannot be a leader spiritually. If you are not being led spiritually, you have to be being led, which means that you've got to be being fed spiritually. You've got to be involved in Bible instruction. Okay, you've got to be uh, accountable to someone. You can't lead spiritually if you're not being led spiritually. Ultimately, Jesus is the head of the church. Amen. Right. Jesus is the head of the church. And so we are all pursuing Christ. And so as Jesus is the head, that is the pursuit. Romans 8, 29. I said it Sunday morning. And so as Jesus is the head, we are pursuing Jesus. But then God, just like in Exodus 18 with Moses, he puts people in spiritual authority to lead people to holiness and to godliness and to sanctification. And as God does that, people have positions of authority to lead spiritually. But those people that are leading spiritual leaders are leading because why? Because they have been led. That God has used someone in their life to lead them, to develop them spiritually, to be who He wants them to be. And so said another way, God refines people before He defines people. You want to be a spiritual leader? You want God to use you in the kingdom? Well, you need to go through the refining before you are defined as a leader. Again, this goes back to title. That a lot of people want the title, but they don't want the responsibility. Right? And so as we we talk about this, well, you say, well, I don't want to be refined. Well, I would agree with you. Refining is uncomfortable. Right? But you look at Scripture and tell me if you can find somebody who God didn't refine before He defined. Or you look at David. How long was David out in, you know, in running from Saul? I mean, exempt Saul... Uh, Paul himself, as we're talking about, he wrote this letter tonight, spent 13 years after he got saved before God began to use him. And example after example, Jesus was 30 before he started his ministry on earth, right? And so God refines us as he, you know, as as he refines people. There's this time period to where he is preparing and, and not only just preparing you, but like in Jesus's case, he was preparing others to receive what Jesus was to say, right? And so this refining process is both for the leader and it is also for those who are being led. And so spiritual development, leadership development is synonymous with personal development. You see, we have to grow personally because the capacity to lead increases as we grow personally. Now, what if, what if God gave you kids to see how good of a leader you were. To which some people would say, oh my goodness, I think I failed. (laughs) 
Right when your three-year-old is yelling at you in Walmart or something, you're like, I'm not a very good leader. I can't even lead kids, right? But, I mean, think about it. You know, that is, it is a, it's almost like an amazing perfection model of how God uh, gives us these little ops or opportunities or glimpses into leadership that we really don't see that way, right? You don't, you don't see yourself as leading a, an army of children when you're their parent. You don't see that, right? You, you see yourself as trying to survive as their parent, right? But what if God is using that to refine you in spiritual leadership? I mean, there's things that you learn, man, as a parent that you wouldn't learn otherwise, See, the Bible says in Luke 16, 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. And so we've got to grow. We've got to be honest and faithful in small things before God is going to open up opportunities for larger things. You see, you are never going to lead publicly if you are not growing personally. Now, there's a lot of examples of leader failure in our world today. And I can tell you, without reservation that I guarantee you is because of lack of personal development. If there's no accountability, there's no growth. You see, one of the things that I've said for a long time about leadership is that you're not a leader unless someone's following you. You can tell me all day long that you're, I'm a leader, I'm a leader. God made me to be a leader. Well, somebody's going to follow you if you're a leader. I mean, I can give you example after example after example of how God has used people all throughout the ages and certainly throughout Scripture that God said, you're a leader. And guess what? People follow them. Leaders have followers. People follow people who are leaders. You can't say that you're a leader if no one is following you. But listen, as we think about that metric, spiritual leadership is even more than that. It's not just, oh, well, God called me to lead. Well, you know what? You know how you lead? You lead people, and that's how you confirm your leadership, that there are people that are actually following you. And spiritual leadership is even a step further. When you lead spiritually, not only are people following you. Now, there's a lot of leaders in history that weren't spiritual leaders. They did a lot of bad things, and a lot of people followed them. Right? I mean, look at history. I don't want to give any examples because I'm not going to glorify sin, but it's true. But what we're talking about tonight is not just leadership. We're talking about spiritual leadership. When you lead spiritually, people don't just follow you. They follow you to Jesus. They follow you to Jesus. They're not heralding your praise. They're heralding his praise. They're not saying Matt is awesome. They're saying God is awesome. Right? That's what spiritual leadership is. And so when you lead spiritually, God uses you to draw people to himself. So ask yourself the question, if I'm leading spiritually, are people being drawn to Jesus? That's how you know you're leading spiritually. See, in other words, are they maturing in Christ's likeness because of what God is doing through me? Are they growing in Christ's likeness? We all have influence. There's people around you that hang out with you, that respect you, that listen to you. You know, we talked about that with the formation of D groups. You know, who do you have influence over? Who listens to you? Who respects you? Everybody has that. So the question is, if you're in here tonight and you're a D group leader, this is a good measurement for you. Are the D group members in your group growing in Christ likeness? Are they becoming more like Jesus? 
You see, that's the goal of discipleship. That's the metric of Christianity. It is not that they would do what you want them to do or, you know, they would do all their work or, you know, they would show up, you know, having read. No, it's that they're growing in Christ likeness. This proves that your leadership is authentic because of the activity of God in their life. This verifies the authenticity of your spiritual leadership. So what I hope is happening in your heart right now is that you're you're thinking of, okay, well, I'm in this position, maybe of authority, maybe of leadership. And you're asking yourself the question, not am I doing a good job, but are people that I'm influencing becoming more like Jesus? Because if they're not, then you're not leading them spiritually. You may be leading them, but you're not leading them spiritually. Spiritual leadership, let's say it again, is moving people onto God's agenda. And so leadership authenticity is verified, it's confirmed through the activity of God. If you'll remember, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had a conversation, Pastor Tony preached on giftedness. Remember that in 1 Corinthians. And in the conversation on giftedness, we talked about, Pastor Tony talked about four things, four steps, if you will, Uh, to giftedness there was first of all there was availability right am I available for God to use me second was opportunity remember this you know what are the opportunities that God has put before me you know if I show up to Walmart I love this example if I show up to Walmart and say hey I'm here I just want to let y'all know I'm a great manager I would love a great Walmart salary because I'm a great manager and so I mean I really feel like I would do a good job Well, it doesn't matter what I think about my management skills, right? There's got to be availability. Well, thanks for coming, but we already have a manager. Or opportunity. Hey, we've got a manager trainee program. Are Are you willing to go through that? You see, if I just show up and say I'm something, and that's what happens in church. People show up and they say what church people say, and instantly we're like, leader, this guy's charismatic. This lady's a great leader. She's a great planner. He does a good job. But no, are people following you in Christ likeness? That is the metric. So it's the availability, opportunity that we talked about, affirmation. Then God would affirm it. The authenticity is the activity of God. God would affirm what he is calling that person to do. And then lastly, as we... Pastor Tony talked about it would be design. And so to to put this all in a nutshell, what we're saying is that when a person is living in the power of the spirit of God, the lives of those around them are changed. They're changed there. Listen, there is no other definition for this. It is not. We're working on it. No, they are changed. This this believism that you can meet Jesus and not be different is false. It's heretical and it's sending people to hell. It's not true. You cannot meet Jesus and not be changed. It's not possible. It's not. Let me let me reverse. You can have your version of Jesus, but you can't follow the version of the Bible and not be changed. We got a lot of versions out there. We got a lot of people saying, well, this is the version of Jesus that I follow. Well, that, the, the version of Jesus, not your version of Jesus, is life changing. He is life altering. He is the reason that once a year we have a, a, a Sunday called Easter. Because if you haven't heard, he rose from the grave. Yep, he did. Right? He defeated death. And so that's the Jesus that we're talking about here. 
But so often in our walk with God, we get into this rut of thinking that we're leading people spiritually because we attend or because we read our Bible or we say the right. No, that is not the gospel. That Peter didn't leave everything behind just so it would be easy. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. And so here's some questions I want you to ask yourself. At work, there are some people. You have managers probably. You have people that are uh, in charge and authority maybe. At work, there are some people that you have to follow. It's true. You have to. The question spiritually though is this. Who are you following? Who, who are you following because you desire, right? Who, who, is, who is influencing your walk with God? Who is doing that? And so we would ask the question, this is a question that leaders would ask. Are we the kind of leaders that others want to follow rather than have to follow? Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Right? And here's what a lot of people say. You see this in the NFL today. I was reading this post by Kurt Warner, and he was talking about how a lot of quarterbacks in the NFL today, uh, young quarterbacks are saying, I'm not, a, I'm not a role model. I'm not an example. I don't want to help the new quarterbacks. You know, I'm just here to do my job. I'm just here to play quarterback. And I think a lot of people in church say that. Well, I, 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 you know, I'm not responsible for you. You, know, you do your thing. I'm just, I'm just here to be at church. Right? The question is this. Am I the kind of leader that someone would want? Is there joy in my life? Right? Is there love in my life? I mean, there's some people in this room that I would say, I want to spend as much time as possible with those people because it's very clear that they love God and I want to be around them. Right? They challenge me to be more like Jesus. Right? I want to be around people like that. Is it somebody that I want to be around? Or are you, in, are you around people that you think you have to be around? Is that the type of leader that people look at you and say, well, you know, I have to be in there. I don't want to hurt their feelings. You see, spiritual leadership is about being focused on the kingdom. It's not about, about being focused on me. You see, in a kingdom, in a kingdom, there is no consumer mentality. In, in the church world today, <coughs> in the religious, quote, circuit, there is a consumer mentality. There is. And it may be the way you got here. I don't know. It's very prevalent. Is a consumer mentality of, I like that preacher. I like that music. Here's what it does for me. Here's how it makes me feel. Right? What I'm benefiting from. What I'm getting. There's this consumer mentality. And in a consumer's world, we use words like preference. Right. I prefer hymns. I prefer praise and worship. I right. I prefer this version of the Bible Uh, or alternatives. Right. We say, well, you know, if you don't like this version of, you know, maybe you don't like button up short sleeves. So you say, I prefer pullovers. All right. That's what a consumer says. Or uh, what's the alternative to that? You know, well, what's the if it's not the original part? Well, what's the alternative to it? Or what options do I have? Right. And so that's bled into the church. And we say, well, we have this ministry and this ministry and this ministry. And and if you don't like now, our church is not this way, but there's a lot of churches that are. I've been a part of them that we would say, hey, well, you got this option. Well, if you don't like this, well, we've got a contemporary service and we've got a traditional service. Right. It's like a buffet of Jesus. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but that's the world in which a lot of people that you're rubbing elbows with that go to other churches. That's the world they live in. 
That's the world they live in. It is a consumer mentality. Now, I'm not naive enough to, to believe that there's, unfortunately, some people I'm sure that go to our church that come to consume. You see, a kingdom is different than a consumer. It's different. In a kingdom, words like authority are used. Whose authority are you under? You see, in our, oh, it's, you know, I'm just going to take care of me. I'm just going to. No, you're not. You were created by a, 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 a sovereign God that is Lord over all. It's not just about you. You are under the authority of God the Father. Well, my wife and I were talking earlier today that there, there's this loss of reverence and respect for God in our young people. It, and, and maybe it's just humanity. But the reverence for God has dropped significantly. Would you agree with that? Right. And so we see this this decline of reverence. Well, it's because it is preference. It is not kingdom. We're not under God's authority. We're not under our parents authority. We're not under our leaders authority anymore. In a kingdom, it's not just authority. It's also loyalty. It's loyalty. Oh, I don't like what they're doing there. I don't like what they said. I'm not going back anymore. It was never about you. Never was about you. You see, in a kingdom, there's words like calling. There's words like submission. You don't use those words in a consumer setting. You don't go into Old Navy and say, who's the authority on jeans in here? You know, I mean, that's not how you shop for clothes. But in the kingdom, we're different. We're supposed to be different. And so Paul emphasizes this throughout the letter that he wrote to Titus here about the importance of being focused on the kingdom. And so he cautions mature believers never to act as though they are only responsible for themselves. You and I are not only responsible for ourselves. So we get to Titus finally. That was the intro. (laughs) That was the intro. So we get to Titus here. So Titus chapter 1, verse 5. It's on your handout. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach or blameless, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach or blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word uh, as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. All right? Titus 1, 5 through 9. So Paul essentially gives Titus three things to look for when it comes to spiritual leadership in the church. So again, primarily these apply to leadership. So here's what I want to challenge you to do as we we look at these three things here at the end tonight. Number one, I want you to ask yourself this question. Does this describe the people that are leading me spiritually? Does this describe the people that are leading me spiritually? And number two, am I holding my leaders to a standard that I am not willing to pursue myself? Am I holding my leaders to a standard 
that I am not willing to pursue myself. Right? That's a heart check right there. It helps us to measure what our motivation is. So there's three things that Titus talks about here. They're very simple. They're very clear. Uh, but I think they, we could spend a week on each one. We're not, but we could. So I'm going to give you the three things here as we talk about this. So here's what Paul said that the leaders should be. Number one, he talks about their family life. Here's where we get to meddling, right? He talks about their family life. You see, in the West, in our world today, we have a generation of men who want to live and are encouraged to live as perpetual children. They want to avoid responsibility rather than bearing responsibility. They want to follow instead of leading in their homes. They want the benefits of marriage while retaining the benefits of singleness. That is the current state of manhood today. You see, in your family life, being a man, so this is for the men, being a man means taking responsibility so that others around you would flourish. God made you a man for a reason. God made you a leader for a reason. God made you the head of your household. God put you in position of authority. God has given you the ability to lead. He's given you the authority to lead. He gave Adam the authority in the garden. As a man, He gives you the authority to lead as a man. And it is your responsibility in the kingdom of God to lead your family. To lead your family spiritually. To lead your family well. As I mentioned earlier, as we talk about uh, leading, what is it that your family says about you? By how they treat you. Right? Do they, do they think that you're the king and that you've always got to be served? Do you ever serve your family? I mean, there's a lot of things that we could talk about. Like I said, we could spend a long time on this. But suffice it to say, as a man, you are the leader of your family. And God called you to take responsibility so that people around you would flourish. That the people that are in your sphere of influence that you would affect them to the point to where they are growing, that they are not deteriorating. There are some spouses, there are some children that cower when they're around their fathers, and that should not be. They should know that they are loved. I'm not saying they shouldn't respect you. I'm saying that they should know that they are loved by you. That they should flourish, that they should thrive, that God should grow them under your leadership, that you should not uh, beat them down to browbeat them, that you should raise them up, that you should encourage them. You see, the most important reference for a church leader is what goes on in his home life. So in other words, are you loving your spouse well? What would your wife say about you, sir? What would she say about the way that you treat her, the way that you love her, the way that you take care of her? You see, Paul says that your family life should be in order that he, he says that if anyone is above reproach, are they blameless? And we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but he says that they should be the husband of one wife. In other words, they should be fully devoted and committed to their spouse, that they should love them as Christ loves the church, that, that you would love your spouse that way, that you would love your wife that way. I want to be very clear. Are you loving and leading your kids well? How are your children reacting and responding? 
Are you treating them? Are you loving them? Are you raising them? Are you nurturing them in the admonition of God the Father? I love sports, and my kids know how to play sports, and we spend a lot of time learning to play sports. But I know that sports is not the end-all, be-all. And we focus on, in our family, making sure that we have opportunities for character development through spiritual development. Right? That we, we study the Bible together as a family. That we pray together as a family. That we have meals together as a family. Those are priorities in my life. And if you're any remotely close to me, you know that is true. That family is a very high priority in my life. And so as we think about leadership, and so maybe you're here and you say, well, I, I don't have anybody that I'm following. Well, take some notes. Who loves their family well? Who loves their spouse well? Who leads their children well? You see, Paul is talking about someone that doesn't have a damaging accusation that would come against them as a leader that would embarrass the church by the way that they treat their spouse or their kids. It's important the way that you do that. You see, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, as he writes to Timothy, he said, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? If a man is not loving enough to care for his children, he will not have a heart for the church. If he does not have enough firmness to set limits for his children, how will he have a backbone to bring discipline to the church when it's required? How will he hold someone accountable if his children run over him? Right? That's the other side. Is that you're not only loving your kids well, but you're leading them well. That you're not allowing them to rule the roost. What's happened in a lot of relationships... What's happened in a lot of husband and wife relationships is that relationship has deteriorated and to save face, they've made children the focus of their relationship and the child becomes the throne or the king of that home and everyone does everything to satisfy the kid. You know people like that, unfortunately. I hope it's not you. But they've made the children the leaders of the home to save the marriage. That is not how God designed it. That is not how God designed it. You see, God made you to be the leader of the home and your children are not the leaders of the home. You are the leader. God put you in charge. Have you ever thought about the fact that Adam and Eve were not created as children? They were not infants in the Garden of Eden. You ever thought about that? God created them to be leaders and they're not kids. Okay? They are adults. And so it's the same for you. God made you to be a leader because remember what we said earlier? He led you, He grew you spiritually to be in a position of authority. And so your family life should reflect your spiritual walk with God. So what does your family life look like for your leaders? Number two, uh, as it, for your leaders, as it also applies to you. Number two, personal conduct. Now, this goes back to what I said earlier. How do you treat other people? How do you treat other people? Personal conduct. You see, Paul's primary focus here, he's concerned with character. He's concerned with character. How do you treat people who can't do anything for you? You see, Paul's saying that our personal conduct should be above reproach, or he says blameless. Now, Paul's not saying that it's a standard for one's own internal assessment. In other words, if that were true, if that, you know, Paul was saying be perfect, 
then he would have said, be sinless or be good intentioned. It's not for an internal assessment that, oh, well, I'm not at fault. That's not what Paul is saying. But what Paul is saying is that it reflects the external community observation. In other words, are you sticky? Right? Are you associating yourself and your conduct with things that are not above reproach? Right? It's not just, it's not just evil. Listen to me. You may not agree, and that's fine. But it's not just evil. Listen, it's the appearance of evil. It's the appearance of evil. There's a lot of things, you know, that there's a lot of things that you can do that may be good intentions, but they appear bad, and you shouldn't do them. You shouldn't do them. Listen, if you, if you go to the movie theater and you're taking your kids to see Mickey Mouse and you see your pastor walking in a rated R movie, what are you going to think about that? Right? It, number one, it's a bad idea. But number two, what does it look like? Right? What does it look like? The Passion of the Christ was an R-rated movie, wasn't it? Right? And so you would say, oh, you know, oh, well, they went to watch an R-rated movie. But it's the appearance oftentimes that we don't pay any attention to. Your conduct should be above reproach. And, and, you know, again, this is the metric and the standard that leaders should live by and that we're held to. But it also applies to all of us as we pursue Jesus, that we would say, I want Jesus to be magnified. So there may be something that I'm going to avoid doing because it looks bad. That other people may be led astray because of that. Right. Listen, if I went to a bar, I'm not going to drink. That's just I'm just not going to do that. That doesn't it's just me. It doesn't tempt me. It may tempt you, and for a lot of people it does. For me, it would make no difference whatsoever. But if I went in there, what would it look like, right? All of a sudden, Pastor Matt, he's an alcoholic. He's doing this, that, and the other, right? But it's not a temptation for me, right? But for a lot of people it is. And so the appearance, so I'm not going to do that. You're not going to see me doing that. And so as we talk about personal conduct, you have to think about... We have so strayed on the ambassador of Jesus stuff. You're a representative of the kingdom. There's a lot. Listen, I'm going to be honest. I've talked again about, you know, conflict and stuff. There's a lot of times where I really want to say things that would make me feel better. I think if I said them and they're ugly and they're mean, right? I'm just being honest. There's times where I really want to lash out. And then I remember I can't. I can't. Because I was bought with a price and I'm not my own. That I've been crucified with Christ and not I, but Christ who lives within me. And so when the flesh rears up and says, all right, here we go. This is what we're about to say. And I'm like, yes, we're going to say it. And then guess what? I turn and walk away. Because I know what I represent. I know whom I represent. And for us as believers, we have to say, what does my conduct reflect to the outside world there's a lot of things that aren't bad but there's a lot of things that look bad and we have to be careful about that paul's talking about character here so remember earlier our conversation was uh truth that leads to godliness so i want to lead through personal conduct to godliness you see, the failure of leading through truth normally begins with a moral failure. The failure of truth normally begins with a moral failure. Here's the measuring stick. Now, I want, I want you to think about this, so I'm going to pause and let you think. Okay, here's the question. What behavior 
do you instinctively seek to justify? What behavior do you instinctively seek to justify? Remember, the failure of truth begins with a moral failure that I justify my morality to make it truth. Okay? What behavior are you seeking to justify in your life? That ought to be a red flag. Are there behaviors that you know are sinful, but you find easy to excuse or to belittle so that you can pretend that what is wrong is okay? Are there behaviors that you know are sinful, but you seek to justify? Listen, this is part of sanctification. So the more open you are to this, the more you're going to grow through it. So what behavior are you seeking to justify? You see, it's easy for us to attempt to change the truth so it'll fit our desires. That's the trick of the flesh. And it's crafty. To change your desires. To try to get you to believe that, well, if I distort or change or alter the truth, then it'll help me to justify the way that I feel. And here's the deal. You can justify everything. Whatever it is that you want to be true, you can make yourself believe that it is in fact true. And you can find somebody to agree with you. I mean, look around, right? I mean, look at some of the laws that we have, some of the things that people do. So you can seek to try to change the truth so it'll fit your agenda. And and here's how you do that. It is so much easier. We talk about community all the time around here. But here's where it comes to, to bear in your life. Is when you're in isolation, you're the king of your own life. No one's going to tell you any different because who's in your life to know, right? If people don't come to your house, they don't know what's in your refrigerator. They don't know what you watch on television. Then guess what you're doing? You're writing your own truth because you don't have any context. And so your own desires become the measurement of truth in your life. That's why community is so important. That's why people need to live in your life and you need to live in their life because you need to say, bro, that's wrong how you treat your wife. Hey, that's not good how you treat your children. Hey, you shouldn't be watching that on television, right? How would I know if I never come to your house? How would you know if you never come to my house? And that's how we become the throne on the throne of our own lives. And our desires become justified and they become truth in our own. I know tons of people like this. So it's easy to attempt to change the truth. It's much more difficult to attempt to bring our desires under the control of the truth. Well, that's different. It's different that we would subject or submit our desires to truth. Because here's what happened in the example I gave you earlier. When Matt's flesh speaks up and says, hey, I have a great idea. Let's tell them how we feel. Then truth says, wait a minute. That's not what you should do. Right? Then I, I, I'm reminded through the Holy Spirit of Ephesians 4.15 to speak the truth in love. And I'm reminded of the old saying that it's better to be considered a fool and be silent than to speak and remove all doubt, right? And so it's easier that we would bring our desires under the control, under submitting to the control of the truth of God. And so Paul gives a list of the ways that our flesh attempts to control us and the way that it is manifested. He says not to be overbearing, not to be quick-tempered. Not to be given to drunkenness, not to be violent, not to pursue dishonest gain. And so he gives some very, uh, very specific things here. Uh, in, in that time, there was a Roman poet uh, named Livy, I guess you would say, L-I-V-Y. And this is what the poet said. 
He said the Cretans are as eager for riches as bees are for honey. So apparently they liked money and they tried to pursue their own personal dishonest gain. So Paul gives this list. Here's what they shouldn't do. And then he says, uh, he immediately follows up the negative list with a positive one. And he starts in verse 8. He says, rather, he must be hospitable. One who loves what is good. One who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So he gives some measurements of uh, characteristics. So again, simple ways that we can measure against, you know, what does it look like in my own sanctification? So he starts with uprightness. So uprightness refers to... Uprightness refers to the straightness in our relationships. This is not working correct. With other people. Let's see if we can get it. Well, it's not coming up. Uprightness refers to the straightness in our relations with other people. In other words, that we would be honest. That we know that the dealings are correct, right? Honest, they'd be somebody who does what they say. Somebody who's trustworthy. That's what uprightness means. Then he talks about holiness. Well, this refers to dedication and our relationship to God. So we have uprightness, which is other people. Holiness is our vertical relationship with God. So holiness, what he's talking about, he means to be set apart. To have very high standards. To be very clear in your boundaries. That's what holiness is. And then lastly, he says discipline. Discipline speaks of a man's relationship to himself. So uprightness is others. Holiness is God. And discipline is internal. It's me. And so when he speaks of this relationship to himself with discipline, well, do you have structure? Right? Are you disciplined? This is what I talk about with our small group a lot is you should tell the flesh who's boss in your life. You should do things in your life that show the flesh you're in control. Right? You should get up earlier if you can't get up early. You should work out if you can't work out. You should eat less if you like to eat or whatever it is. You need to tell your, boss, your flesh who's boss. And you should do it in small ways. Right? You should do it in small ways. And so you got to have discipline. There's got to be structure. A disciplined person also is someone who accomplishes things. Accomplishes things. Pastor Tony mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in the message, but reading books. A lot of people will start a book if they read, and sometimes they don't finish. You should finish a book. Right? If you, you should read. And then you should finish what you read. And so that's discipline. That's having discipline. Uh, or, or that's the relationship that you have to yourself. And so... He talks about the family life. He talks about personal conduct. And the last thing tonight that we'll look at here briefly is, number three is, he talks about the gospel stance. He talks about our gospel stance. He said he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Gospel stance. You see, the evidence of the power of the gospel should be so present in our lives as to lead other people to Jesus. The evidence of the power of the gospel should, should be so evident in your life that it leads other people to Jesus. So Paul's saying, look, here's what the leader should do. 
They should interact with the gospel. Here's how they should do it. So he describes how a leader should interact with the gospel. Number one, he says that a leader should hold firm to the word. They should hold on to the word firmly. Hold on to the word firmly. Now, why would he say that? I mean, it doesn't make sense, does it? Tim, uh, Titus, they should hold the word firmly. What does that mean? Is it going to slip away? When my kids were little, I would hold them by their arms. And uh, they're too big now. But you would, you would hold, we would hold them by their arms and we would swing around. We would go down with the kid. And we, they loved it. So we would swing around. And, you know, right before, you know, they'd grab my hand. I'd grab their hand. And so, you know, we'd get ready and I'd say, all right. Hang on, right? And so I'd grab their hands and we'd start swinging around and, and they loved it. It was, you know, just like a merry-go-round. You know, they, when we were kids, you had a merry-go-round and a couple people broke their arms and they did away with them. So this is like our new version of merry-go-rounds. And so I'm, you know, swinging. So we would, I'd grab their arms and, you know, right before, you know, I, I would grab them and say, all right, hold on tight, right? And I told them that because why? Because I knew that their grip was about to be challenged like never before, Right? I'm about to sling you until your arms come out of socket. Not really, but, but, but we would swing around, right? And I knew that they never had held on so tight as what they were about to hang on to, right? Some kids love it, some kids hate it. And so he told them, he says, hold on firmly. You see, our grip on the Word of God is challenged every single day. And if you're not holding on firmly, you know what's going to happen? You're going to slip. You're going to slip. And so Paul says, look, I want you to hold on to the word firmly. Now, the good news for my kids is that their grip didn't matter because I wasn't letting go. And the good news for you and me is that God encourages us to, to hang on, that we would hold firmly. But remember, he's holding on to me way more than I'm holding on to him. All right. And so that leads us to the second way that leaders interact with the Word. Not only is it firmly, but Paul is saying also that they would hold on to the Word carefully. So when he's talking about this being firm, that we would stand for what we believe in. You believe that the Bible, I do. You believe that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God? I do. And so that I would stand firmly on that. You believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? I do. You would stand firmly on that. You believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him? I do. So we would stand firmly on that. That we would not waver. Listen, if you want to debate someone about whether or not they should be submerged or sprinkled or confirmed or whatever, then do that. All right? Do it. The man on the the cross wasn't baptized. You should be baptized. We're commanded to be baptized. But the criminal on the cross, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. I'm not going to debate something that the criminal on the cross uh, didn't disqualify him from heaven. Right? Does that make sense? We are commanded, it is a sacrament, that we would be baptized. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be. You absolutely should. What I'm telling you is this, is that sometimes we so focus on the color of the carpet or the the length of the program or whatever, instead of focusing on the main thing, right? Let the main thing be the main thing. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That a, a saved life is evidence through a changed life and that the baptism is evidence of that changed life, right? 
That's what we celebrated this past Sunday. But so many times we get tangled up and we hold loosely to things that we prefer instead of standing firmly on the things that absolutely make the most difference. If you get somebody to uh, agree with you that your version of the Bible is correct, but they miss Jesus, you lost and they lost. There's a lot of churches that are predicated on things like that. But Paul says, listen, hold on to the word firmly. Stop letting the devil trick you into focusing on small things that are out on the outskirts, right? Focus on the main things that Jesus is who he said he is, that he changes people's lives. And the evidence is that he changed your life. And listen, if he didn't change your life, then he's not in your life. All right, I love how James says that he is now in Christ. That is what salvation is, is that you are now in Christ, okay? And that because of that, you have been radically changed. And listen, tonight, if that didn't happen to you, then you need to let that happen to you, right? There's people in the room that would love to talk to you. I would be glad to talk to you after service. But if your life is not changed, you are not in Christ. That is the truth. That is the truth. So stop holding firmly to things in your life that don't make a difference in your life. So he says, be firm and be careful. He tells Titus to hold on to what is, uh, hold firm to what is taught. Okay? Hold firm to what is taught, not what is thought. Hold firm to what is taught, not what is thought. So what does that mean? So he's saying, be careful about this. In other words, he says, look, I want you to tell them to hold fast, to hold firm to what is taught. In other words, what has been passed down. You know, the the Bible was orally passed down through generation and generation and generation. And then, you know, finally it was written down and there's over 6,000 fragments of the copies of handwritten scripture. And that's a fascinating topic in and of itself. But he's saying, look, be careful about it, okay? Be careful about what is taught, not what is acceptable, not what people think is true, but be careful about what God's word says says, what is your gospel stance? Not what is your church preference? Not what is your denominational preference? What is your gospel stance? Because when the gospel is in your life, there is a changed life. And when the gospel is in your life, guess what? You are just like Peter and the disciples in Acts where you say, and you live this, that I can't help but tell people about Jesus. I can't help but say about the things that are inside of me, right? That's gospel stance. And that is being careful to communicate that. When we hold to the truth firmly, when we hold to to the truth carefully, what is the result? Well, Paul says here that this gospel stance will spur people on in their knowledge of Jesus. And it will empower people. It will empower leaders to rebuke or to expose those who contradict the word. To expose those who contradict the word. So there was a lot here that Paul said in a few words. That we have a high standard. You know, Pastor Tony said it many times. In a lot of different ways. But at at Michael Memorial Baptist Church, we have a standard for leaders. 
And it's a biblical standard. And we're going to adhere to that standard. We're not saying be perfect. We're saying that there's a standard and that, look, just like I preached a few weeks ago on love, I can't love my neighbor without the presence of the Spirit of God in my life. I can't do that. You can't do that. And so I can't be a leader that God's called me to be without the presence of the Spirit of God in my life. And so for you being a leader in your context, in your family, in your D group, for you to be a spiritual leader, you cannot do that apart from the presence of the Spirit of God. And so here's our takeaway question tonight. We talked about family. I want you to think about those questions that we talked about. We talked about personal conduct, the appearance of that. We talked about gospel stance. And so here's our takeaway as we close tonight. Last question we've got. Number one, what is God calling me to? What is God calling you to? Look, do not be content with just showing up and sitting down. That is not what God is calling you to. God is calling you to bring people. God is calling you to share your testimony. God is calling you to serve people. God is calling you to be a part of what He is doing. I mentioned at the very beginning of the service Sunday morning that it is very clear what? That God is on the move, right? And so for you, the question is, God is clearly working. God, what do you want me to be a part of that? How do you want me to be a part of that? What are you calling me to do? What are you calling me to be a part of? And then number two is how am I going to respond to that? How am I going to respond to that? Now, again, we have standards, right? We have biblical standards that we abide by. And so our response ought to be what? That we would say, I want the truth. I'm going to subject my desires. I'm going to submit my desires to the truth of God. I'm not going to change the truth to fit my desires, but I'm going to change my desires. I'm going to ask God to change my desires to fit the truth, to submit to the truth. And I think it's very easy that if you go back and you think about and you pray about what God showed us tonight, that you'll say, hey, look, there are some areas in my life that I need to bring in a, a submission to God. We can all say that. There's ways that I need, to, I need to treat my spouse better. I need to treat my children better. I need to love other people well. I need, I need to stop leading for personal gain, right? And I need to start leading to move people on God's agenda. That's where you know that you're leading spiritually is when people that you are influencing are becoming more like Jesus. I hope that's your goal. That's my goal for you. I hope that's your goal for the people that you have an opportunity 